0: Storytelling brings the passions of my guests to life through our conversations. So be prepared to be entertained, informed, and inspired. Welcome to today's show. Hello everybody, and thank you for joining me today. My guest is Jerome Charon. He is we well, are in for a treat, my friends. He is a writer with over fifty publications, including his latest book, Big Red. That was just released last week. It's a novel starring Rita Hayworth and Orson Welles. It's going to be very good. Welcome to the show, Jerome. Thank you, Marcia. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. I think we could probably spend one hour just talking about you and your background. But we're not going to do that because I have questions I want to ask you about this latest book about Rita Hayworth. So before we get there, I thought it would be really interesting for our listeners to get a sense of who you are on this journey that you've been on for so many years. Tell us about yourself. Well, it was
1: really a journey. I grew up in, uh, you know, the poor section of the Bronx. Uh, My parents barely spoke English. Um, so the movie house uh, was really like my you know, synagogue or, or cathedral it's really it taught me how to speak English it taught me how to dress it taught me how to kiss it taught hmm. me everything that you know I, uh, I, I needed to know so I uh, always longed to go to the movies uh, and to get away from my home And I had a particularly difficult childhood because my father hated me. You know, don't ask me why. Uh, I could look into his eyes and see such hatred that uh, I had to turn inward. You know, I had to sort of live within my imagination. And, of Mm -hmm. course, that was my great gift. I had an inner world from a very young age, and I could tell stories. And I've been telling stories for the last 60 years. And it's endless. It could go on and on. A novel That's never the, really ends, you know, more You know, you have you, you have the ending, but the, the story really continues.
0: You know what's so interesting, Jerome, about what you just said, is that you had the wherewithal, at such a young age, to turn inward, to sort of save yourself, which is how I hear you saying that. Like um, this, my dad and I, we're, we're just this isn't working, but I'm going to live. And I'm going yeah. to survive, and I'm going to use what I have within me to do that. But you are so highly educated. I thought you could just spend a few minutes just telling people about that part of your background.
1: Well, absolutely. Uh, I wanted to be a painter. You know, um, I loved uh, I loved Van Gogh. You know, the idea of Van Gogh uh, dying very early and suddenly a uh, hundred years later. He's He's there, so, uh, but I had no talent whatsoever. I got into the high school of music and art, and I saw what artists were really like. So, if I was going to be a painter, I had to paint with words. So, I didn't have any language either. Don't think I had any skills. I wasn't a born poet. You know, I had no language in my head. So, I had to teach myself how to write. It was a constant struggle, but on the other hand. This is what I wanted, and I wanted nothing else, and nothing was going to stop.
0: Wow. So t- tell us just a little bit about Paris.
1: Well, when I was five years old, I saw a film called The Arc de Clion, which, you know, was took place in Paris during the German occupation, and I fell in love with it. and I said, you know, when I grow older, I'm going to live in Paris. When I went into junior high school, everybody, you know, we had two – a choice of two foreign languages, Spanish and, and and French. And, of course, everybody spoke Spanish because uh, it was much more useful. So I was in a class of one. I had my own teacher. And so instead of learning French, she told me all about Paris and France. So I always had it in my mind uh, to live in Paris. And then when one of my books was published, someone knocked on my door and came in and said, "You know, you're you're famous in Paris." I said, "What are you talking about?" He showed me all these reviews. One of my books had been published there and uh cafes were named after my characters. So I said, "Okay, I'll go. You know, I had never been on an airplane. I I was frightened of everything." So I said, "Well, it's worth it." I went to Paris and from that point on, I just fell in love with it and I would walk the streets, and even now I've returned to New York, and because of the pandemic, I can't go back. But for a long time, I had a wonderful apartment in Paris where I could look out upon the city, and uh, I really miss it.
0: But you also had an interesting other aspect of what you did professionally in Paris as well.
1: Yes, well, uh, you know... I I never thought of writing as as earning money. I mean, I never thought of it as writing bestsellers. So, uh mm-hmm. after my first novel published, you know, it was exactly at the time when universities were taking writers, uh, you know, were accepting writers to teach. So, I had an offer right away from Stanford and Berkeley. I should have chosen Berkeley, but I chose Stanford. And from that point on, I taught at Stanford, then I went to the City University of New York. I also taught at Princeton. Uh, and finally, I went, I did move to Paris in, I think, 1989. And I wrote a letter. There's an American university there, and I said, I can teach this, that, that, and film. And they needed me to teach film, so I started my own film department. <laughs> and I had a wonderful time, because all I would do was... Uh, sit with my students, we'd watch a film, and I'd say, just tell me what you see inside the frame. I don't want to hear anything about what doesn't happen within the frame. And, and, and the real insight is that after every class, I felt so good, you know, I felt privileged that I could sit down and talk with intelligent students about films that I loved. So it hmm. wasn't really a job; it was something that I was done for free. But I would never tell them that.
0: It reminds I me of that saying: "A, a match them. made in heaven."
1: Yeah, I would have paid them, but of course I didn't.
0: You know. <laughs> oh gosh. Well, I I think you have an interesting backstory. Some I don't know if you've written a biography, but I think you should. That's just my thoughts. All right, we're going to talk about the book that was just released last tuesday it's been hasn't even been a week yet and the right. name of the book is called big red a novel starring rita hayworth and orson wells so we're going to talk about that now so let's why did you decide to focus on rita hayworth and orson wells in your new novel
1: well um having taught you know um at the American University of Paris. One of my courses was a seminar on Orson Welles. And I realized after watching his films and studying him that he had revolutionized Hollywood. I mean, uh, he was the first filmmaker to have final cut in Hollywood. In other words, uh, most directors, after they finish the film, it's the studio that cuts the film. And he had Final Cut. He was the first and only director at the time who had Final Cut. And he hmm. made Citizen Kane, which for a while was lost because Hollywood hated the notion of a film where they didn't have any control over. But after I taught this seminar on Orson Welles and saw his absolute brilliance and also his ability to destroy everything around him, including himself, I thought at this age, well, you know, why don't I write a novel about Orson Welles? So I read every book I could. And the the only thing I learned was that everything he said was a lie. I mean, he would boast about this. He would boast about this. I could do that. I could do that. It's not true. He couldn't have made Citizen Kane uh, without the equipment that Hollywood gave him. Citizen Kane was a Hollywood film made in Hollywood by Hollywood you know, uh, technicians with the genius of, of, of Orson Wells, And so I couldn't really write a novel in his voice. Everything I would be saying would be boastful. He couldn't be simple. That is, I couldn't really make him sympathetic. Mm. So as I began to read about him, I also read about his second wife, Rita Hayworth, and I discovered that she had been violated as a child. She became a child dancer. She danced with her father. And she became a sexual porn. And, oh. you know, we we learn about her that she was so shy, she could barely get out a word. And we understand now why she was so shy. I mean, she was sort of taken advantage of, brutalized by a father from the age of 12. And the only person she ever seemed to love was Orson Welles, and he was not very kind to her. So that Mm -hmm. was another reason why I I felt angry at Welles, even though I, I, I think he's the greatest of American filmmakers. And I said, well, I really want to write about Rita, but I can't write in Rita's voice, so I had to invent a character. So I found a young woman, Rusty Redburn, who was uh, a lesbian who goes out to, uh, a gay woman who goes out to Hollywood, and the first sentence, I mean, I'm I'm not going to quote it because I don't remember it, but I'll remember it as best I can. Uh, (laughs) I was an actor who couldn't act, a a dancer who couldn't dance, a singer who couldn't sing, so I went to Hollywood. And I Mm. think the the first sentence of a novel becomes a novel, and from that point on, I was able to tell her story and the story of Orson and the story of Rita.
0: That's that's interesting um, that that you use that that concept to be able. That's very inventive, in my opinion, and that's be, but but it doesn't surprise me because you've been, you I mean you've written have what have you written over 30 books? So this is you're not new to this, um, and. And you you have a design.
1: Marsh, each book is different. You know, each book has its own validity. You know, every time you write a book, you're starting all over again. That's what makes it interesting because it's Mm -hmm. so, so difficult to write a novel. You have to keep so many facts inside your head. You have to maneuver in so many different ways that it's like a a kind of musical composition and you have to pick up themes and then return to other themes. It's really exhausting work. It's, it's not worth the money. If someone said they would give me $100,000 to write a novel, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take the $100,000 because it has to be something I really love.
0: But it sounds like over the years you have. and um, I've only
1: done what I've wanted to do. I've isn't that listened, a
0: no. – well, think about that. How, I wonder how many people are listening to you and I right now and heard you say, I only do what I wanted to do. You know, I don't know if there's people, I mean, I guess I sort of fit into that category. I'm, I'm not forced to do what I'm doing for well over seven years. I do because I want to, because I get the opportunity to meet wonderful people like yourself and your wife, who I spoke with um, before we came on this broadcast together and, that's a, and that's another
1: interesting story too but maybe we'll save it for another broadcast well, my relationship with my wife yeah.
0: yeah you know if if we have time at the end I may have you share that because I know we okay. talked about it off the air
1: right
0: but I guess what happens I you're a, you're a writer you take pen to paper or fingers to keys or however you do that in your style, I don't know. Do you do you just sit in front of a computer and just type away, well, or do some, you longhand it? How I do you write do that?
1: Hand. You do, uh, but very often I write on the computer. It depends. In, in other words, when you hear a sentence, I like to write it down, and then you know because writing is always rewriting. When you have the first draft of a novel, it's just sort of the outline, the sketch, I would say that I do at least a thousand drafts of a book, you know. Wow. So it's really rough. It's, it's, as I say, it's not worth the money. There's no money you could pay me to write a book if I did not want to write it.
0: Right. But how, how lovely that it has nothing to do with how much you're going to get paid, but more how internal... It 's like me and my talking. I can't imagine yeah. not being in a conversation with somebody. You can't imagine not writing because you love it, and a lot of people don't love what they do they they're, they're in a business that they really don't want to be in, or they've just got circumstances in their life. So you and I are very grateful we are We are two very grateful people. And having the ability to do the things that we love, and I guess my question would be to you as we as we look back um what do you think your novel says about the way women were treated in Hollywood in the mid twentieth century what 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 about well, that
1: I've always had very strong women characters. I don't know why I mean.
0: My women are
1: much stronger than my men in, in my novels from the, from the very beginning. You know, we could analyze it and try to understand, but Hollywood was about taking advantage not only of women but also of men, but particularly of women, and taking sexual advantage of them. It really was all about you didn't become a star Uh, unless you became sort of the the producer's quote-unquote companion. So that it was very, very difficult in the golden age of Hollywood for women to sort of operate. First of all, they couldn't pick their own films. And second of all, they had a seven-year contract that could be broken every six months. So the real real, um, villains of, of, the, of that period were not the directors or the actors, they were the producers, because they were the ones who had all the power, and they had final cut. And so the directors really were, you know, um, they were all workers in this uh, crazy paradise. And what was interesting is that at least during the Second World War, I mean, because of the German occupation of Europe, Hollywood was the world capital. Hollywood was the place where, you know, everyone was, you know, was the dream palace of the entire world. And I was privileged to be alive at that time during the war and to see those films and to to love them. I just loved them.
0: Were you physically living in Hollywood during this time?
1: No. I only went to Hollywood once or twice. The first time I went, I was researching a book um, on Hollywood and I stayed at the Roosevelt Hotel and I asked the manager because I knew that uh, Clark Gable had lived with Carol Lombard when they were both you know, lovers and not married and I said, could you tell me where they stayed? And he took me up to this penthouse which was all wood paneled and showed me where they lived with this view of Hollywood Boulevard and I, I just I fell in love with these characters, and the first time I went to Hollywood, uh, you know, I think I was well into my 40s, and I just fell in love with it, and then I came again as a producer, and I had, I had a, a suite that was uh, as big as a fortress, but, you know, it just didn't, didn't make me feel, being a mogul did not make me feel good, it made mm-hmm. me feel foolish. You know, and I was so much happier when I had my room and just walking down Hollywood Boulevard, going to mm-hmm. these shows and sort of having lunch and then going to Hollywood and Vine and seeing that wonderful yep. mural of all these actors. It was paradise for me.
0: Yeah, people still, you know, I, I, it's still a place. If, if you have, because I don't live that far from there, you know, right. you have people visiting from out of state, one of the first things they want to do is go to Hollywood. Um, right. I'm a I I am a subscriber to the Pantages Musical Theater, so I go to Hollywood pretty regularly. Um, it's you know you've got a lot of street vendors now, you've got a lot of shenanigans and other things <clears throat> that are going Absolutely. along Hollywood Boulevard. But I wanted to, I wanted to get a clarification on something that you said because you know my my thought is if you don't know then you don't know. And so if you don't know, maybe somebody else doesn't know. So in the terms of glossary, and, I, and that's how I'm categorizing this, can you tell me the difference between the responsibilities of a producer as opposed to a director? I, I really wouldn't be able to answer that. What's the difference between their two yeah, okay. responsibilities? Okay,
1: we'd have to be talking about Hollywood now because the director yes. does have final cuts. In most situations, in other words, he is the final arbiter of what he, what he does because he's also the producer. But in Hollywood terms, the director was a hired gun. He was given an assignment, okay, and then he, he hands in what is called the rough cut, okay? That is, he puts those scenes, takes out those scenes, and he generally works with a cutter uh, and, and tells the cutter where to cut. And then it's shown to the producers, and then they're the ones who do the final cut. So the strongest person in that schema you know, is not the actor, is not the director, but the producer, because he puts the, everything together. Uh, he's the one who, who sort of collects the actors and the director and produces the final film. This is in classic Hollywood. It's now mm-hmm. very different because in most situations now... The director is also the producer, and he's the one who, or she, puts, the, puts mm-hmm. the film together. Is the producer the money man?
0: The producer
1: may himself not be the money man, but he represents the money man.
0: I see. In, in the okay.
1: theater, the producer is the money man. In, in the theater, the producer provides the money and therefore puts the production on. Uh, In the studio, the producer is not the the sort of the the money man. He's the person sort of who acts for the money man.
0: I see. All right. Well, I appreciate you telling me that. Well, we've talked about Hollywood, and you've lived through that golden age of Hollywood, and you have a pretty unique perspective that you bring to your novel. So what was it really like? Well,
1: uh, I mean, going back to the idea of the producer, for example, you look at the person like David O. Selznick. For example, uh, who really directed Gone with the Wind? Nobody knows, because they had, they, Selznick hired and fired seven directors. So the okay. real director of Gone with the Wind is David O. Selznick, who was listed as, as the producer. But... Um, in terms of the golden age of Hollywood, you have to remember what people forget is that they had the best technicians in the world. And when I was, you know, in my 40s and went to the Disney studios, I was able to see how they could make Bambi and Pinocchio and create the illusion of three dimensions. And uh, they were wonderful artists, you know, completely forgotten, but how they put the frames together was, was, was fascinating. I, and I consider the early Disney pictures, Pinocchio, Bambi, uh, Dumbo, uh, as great works of art. They were Disney's greatest
0: works of art. Yeah. yeah you, you, you conjure up so many thoughts as you're saying this. My grandparents yeah. lived in Culver City when they moved here from Duluth, Minnesota. And they lived on a street called Jackson. That if you were to drive, and the house is still there. If you were to drive on that street, you would eventually land at the Sony Studios. But way back in the day, MGM was there. There were all these studio people there. It it was pretty. It was pretty amazing. um, How many people um, had careers living so near to where I live today? But I want to ask you something about your book because I think this is really interesting. Because I'm using the word book. Is the better word for me to use, because I guess this would be another um, definition that I don't know the difference of, is there a difference between the word book and novel?
1: Well, a book would define any kind of form of writing. It could be a biography, it could be an autobiography, it could be a a story of, uh, you know, of architecture or painting, but a novel is... People, you know, don't realize, you know, that that a novel is a very limited form, even though you may be writing about Abraham Lincoln, but you're writing about Lincoln or Orson Welles or Rita Hayworth in fictional terms. So you have to stay close to her career, but on the other hand, you can invent what you want to invent. So it's like walking on a tightrope but you mm-hmm. really have to know what you're doing. And, uh, sure. And and I I got an incredible amount of pleasure from writing about Orson, whom I always loved. So the dialogue in Orson's voice, I mean, I could just relive that a thousand times because I have his voice inside my head. It's Rita who was so difficult because she had no voice.
0: So, that really leads me into my next question, which was how did you enter into the persona of Rita Hayworth in this book?
1: I invented her. She's my reader, You know, she's the reader that I imagined. She's the reader that I saw. And she had no vocabulary since, you know, I, I gave her the words. And, of course, it's from Rusty Redburn's point of view. It says Rusty sees her. So that was, and and what I wanted to do was break the reader's heart. I wanted to make readers so poignant that you would leave the book sort of shaking. And I think this is what the job of the writer is, to create as much emotion as you can in the fewest number of words, emotion, into words. And that's no easy thing to do.
0: I imagine it's not. I'm, I'm thinking about that. Um, I, I'm thinking about what you're saying by packing this emotion into a more concise form as opposed to having a conversation which has all kinds of commas as the conversation right. continues.
1: Yes. Uh, and, and remember, you know, when you do the first draft, you may be adding things, but it's cut, cut, cut cut whatever doesn't belong there is taken out and you have to be merciless even though a line may be a good line but if it doesn't work within the music of the book within the narrative frame within the sort of the, the propulsion the, the force of the book it, those words have to be taken out so sometimes you're losing your best lines but you're doing it for the sake of the book it's always for the sake of the of, of the book and the beauty of the book, and the truth of the book. Just remember, even though you're telling lies, you're involved in the truth, in the truth of what the real reader was was like and what the real awesome was like.
0: So I'm I'm picturing you right now. I'm picturing yeah. you at your desk, and I'm picturing yeah. you looking at your notes, I'm picturing you at your computer, and you've now just written 12 paragraphs. Do you find for yourself in your process that you need to read them out loud to hear them? No.
1: I, you, you have an inner voice. I never read things out loud because I don't think... You, you, you have a voice inside your head. You have a kind of music inside your head. Mm-hmm. And reading them out loud... Um, Um, may be a virtue for some people, but for me it's not a virtue at all. I mean, if someone asks me to read, I don't get any tremendous pleasure out of it because I'm always reading internally as I write. There is a voice inside your head as you know it yourself. If you're writing a letter, you can hear what you're saying as you write it.
0: That's interesting. So you would not... be standing in line to say, oh, let me raise my hand. I want to do an audible book here. That probably would not be you.
1: Um, I could do an audible book, but I could not say that it would be better than Quentin Tarantino doing, reading The Voice. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not an actor. I did train for some time at the actor's studio, but mm-hmm. I was working with real actors who can – you know, uh, who can enunciate not only the words but syllables, who can put the emphasis on a syllable which changes the entire meaning of a sentence. I mean, there sure. is a poetry, a craft, to acting. I'm not an actor. I'm a writer.
0: Right. It's, it's, re- it's, it's interesting, and I think it's really great that you taught it for so long. Do you ever have any students reach back out to Jerome and say, you know what, I just, sir, I just need to thank you because this is how you have affected my life 30 years ago. Do you, do you have any students well, well, that reach yes, back out to I, you?
1: I I, I, I actually I do. I, I have one student when I was teaching at Princeton, nobody else wanted him. Joyce Carroll threw him out of her class, and oh. he was a pariah, and he came to me and said, give them to Jerome, you know, <laughs> give them to the maniac. So he came in and he said, I don't want to go to class. I said, that's fine. You know, just do your pages and we'll sit down and and work on them together. And he was a wonderful student. He was a wonderful writer. And so I wanted to get in touch with him again because uh, we were, um,
0: uh,
1: I I was doing a a, a novel about, um, uh, about, uh, Lincoln and uh, I was going, you know, uh, to Gettysburg. So I managed managed to get his uh, his address and so I wrote to him and I said, you know, I said to him, do you remember me? And he wrote back and said, I remember you every day of my life. And that's the most beautiful thing anyone has ever said to me. You
0: know, wow. That I was
1: that important to him and his uh, and his writing, you know. I mean, that's the that's, pleasure that a teacher gets. You
0: know. Yes, I, and I'm sure that that's true. And, you know, the interesting thing is that legacy passes on because he will do that paying it forward, so to speak. He will do that for the next generation. And that's yes, why literature is so important. You know, you know, that, so the important.
1: You know I, I remember that showing all the planets, you know, the, the the new telescope and its picture of an endless universe probably makes people feel very depressed, but I didn't feel depressed at all because I felt what another writer called the music of time. You could almost hear the planets singing in a way, and I felt Mm -hmm. a kind of rhythm with the universe. I was just a small portion of this gigantic endless picture, and uh, it made me feel good rather than feel isolated. It made me feel part of
0: I'm wondering, there are a lot of voices in my head. I also have a lot of music up there. There's usually a jukebox going on up in that brain of mine. Right. But for you, are there always, maybe always, Is I'm putting quotes around, is there oftentimes voices in your head that says to you, pick up your pen." or let's sit at the computer because I've got something to say to you and I want you to start writing it. Do you have those kinds of experiences?
1: Well, I I have them in the form of a sentence forming inside my head, and I don't want to forget it, so I would put it down on paper. But, you know, when you're writing a novel, the most difficult thing is the first sentence and the last sentence. How do you enter into, you know, into a text, and how do you leave a text? So sometimes it takes you about a month to write the first sentence to get it right. And then from that point on, the music carries the text along. I'm a storyteller. Right. I'm a storyteller who sings, you see. I I like to think of myself as someone who's singing a story, Mm -hmm. okay? And I want the music to be in the sentences and it doesn't mean that you have to sing them out loud you can sing them no. and, you know you reading to yourself but voice is very very important to me voice is everywhere. there's
0: a melody isn't there yes, there's a cadence it
1: has to be. if if you know you know dissonance you know if there's uh, discord you really can't get into the text the text has to drive along with its own power with its own force and with uh-huh. its own And you don't always succeed. You have to remember that you have to be used to failure. Anything that works, you know, can also not work. So Mm -hmm. when you write something, you have to be willing to fail. And you have to, you know, everyone can start something, but not everyone can finish. I'm a a finisher. You know, I start, I work at it, and then I finish.
0: That's, do you reread and reread and reread what you've written and, and edit along the way, or do you wait till you're all done and then come back?
1: Well, um, no, I, I reread. You know, when I do, let's say, a section of a novel after I finish that section, I will start revising, and as I go along, uh, I will go back and forth and revise, and then after I finish the whole thing, let's say with my new novel, which is on Maria Callas, um, I will start revising. And that, that quality of revision takes a very, very long time because you see your mistakes, you see your virtues, you see mm-hmm. things that have to be changed, you see discords, you see mistakes. Uh, you cannot fall in love with what you do. It's very, very important. It's ha- you're not the arrogant. Humility is the crucial factor, in any, any writer I know who's really a wonderful writer is quite humble. I have to say that. I, I would say that that's... Necessary. I,
0: I, and, I, and I sense that about you. I sense your humbleness. Um, well, I can't so, say
1: that about myself. I'm only saying that I, I, I think that in writing you, you really do have to be humble... And say, you know, maybe you're able to do it. Maybe you're not going to be able to do it. And also, you have to you have to be very, very careful about success because success demands that you have another success. Mm -hmm. And a really good book may not be successful. So you have to have the freedom to fail. And you have to have the freedom. To succeed with a very small audience, and maybe one of your books will reach a wide audience. You mm-hmm. don't really know. Maybe the subject will, you know, will catch on to to a wider audience. But you have to be very, very careful about failure and success because success itself is usually the ruination of a writer.
0: So and you my friend, you
1: to do you know what you've already done, and you don't want to do what you've already done.
0: I would just say, as someone that I've never met, but I have only spoke with, while you may not classify yourself as a man that is humble i i I don't know you well, but to me you you are humble, and I think that that just speaks to your inner core that this isn't about could everybody please stand up and give me a standing ovation i I don't think that that's what you're all about. <clears throat> I just don't see
1: that. Well, Marsha, I'll give you a standing ovation.
0: Oh, there you go, because, you know, I'm not humble.
1: I feel feel very strongly about that stuff because if you fall in love with what you write, you know, if you have the fantasy of being in love with what you write and you're not critical about what you write, it's not going to be good, I can tell you that.
0: Okay. Because
1: without that constant reworking, without that constant sort of clash of language never going to come together in the way that you want. In the way that, so that's that
0: important. right. So if, I'm curious about this. I know you mentioned a little bit about Rusty Redburn. So tell right. us little, little tell us a little bit about Rusty in your book.
1: Well I I had a lot of trouble with Rusty because can men assume the voice of a woman
0: and assume
1: the voice of a lesbian. You know, I mean, we, we live in a very curtailed world, and I, mm-hmm. I wanted, uh, I wanted to tell the story in the voice of a woman, and I thought it was necessary that she be a gay woman, so that she could react to Orson and uh, and and Rita in, in her own way, and I feel that uh, I succeeded. I think, I say I feel, I think, because I don't know. It's not for me to say. But I feel that I succeeded in allowing Rusty to tell the story of Hollywood, of Orson Mm -hmm. and of Rita's great sadness, of her decline. We all know what happened to Rita. As a matter of fact, uh, my wife, Lenore, happened to be at a reading uh, in an apartment where Rita lived at the end of her life on, Austin, on, on uh, uh, Central Park West, and it's very, very sad that she had mm-hmm. early-onset Alzheimer's, but it's not so surprising considering the, the inner life. She wasn't educated. Her father violated her. Her mother did not protect her. It's very, very important. Her mother oh. did not protect her. And so she fell into this world. Uh, she became a star. She had to sleep with producers, as we all know. Uh, this was the, quote, "golden age of Hollywood, which was not really made of gold.
0: Yes. Yes, it sounds like that's true. So do you see, do you ever see yourself in any of your characters that you write about?
1: I see myself in all the characters. And I think, uh, you know, you have to be sympathetic even to the evil characters. You, you have to write about them with a kind of energy. And in order to write about them with energy, you have to see their point of view. You have to see mm-hmm. the way they see the world. And you have to be as cruel as they are, as mean as they are. And this is what gives the novel its, its flavor, its taste, its strength. Its aroma. Uh, a novel has to sing, you know. It's a song. You're really writing a song.
0: Do you think that historical fiction is more powerful than a biography? I'm one of the few who
1: say no, because if you look at, I, I give two examples. I give Doris Kearns Goodwin. Um, um the um, what is it the. Um, um, no, the, the, the I forget the name of the book. Um, uh-huh. A team of scoundrels, a team of rivals. There you go. Yeah, team of mm-hmm. I mean, I, I had to think of that. Uh, that is a a, um, a nonfiction book um, about Lincoln during the Civil War, but it's beautifully written. It could very well be a novel, and I also think of Robert Caro's broker about um, um, uh, ab- about you know, you know the uh, Robert Robert Moses and uh, that's one of the most extraordinary book uh, books I've ever read so mm. it's not true that the nonfiction writer cannot summon up uh, his character or or her character in a fictionalized way. It, it, it's all gift. It's all talent. So that Doris Kearns Goodwin is writing history as if she were a fiction writer, and so is, 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 is Robert Caro. So it's the gift. You know, I, I, I started out as, as an historian, and uh, I could have written history. I don't know. I much prefer to invent. I much prefer mm-hmm. to... Uh, to tell stories, but it isn't true that uh, a, no, a historical novel can be stronger than um, than a, a a a book of history if that history has its poetry, and Doris Kearns Goodwin does. She, she has that gift to be able to tell a story. You have to be a storyteller, mm-hmm. and Robert Moses is is a wonderful. Storyteller. I mean, uh, Robert Caro is, is, a wonderful, is a wonderful storyteller. It's all in the telling of the tale. Mm-hmm. It's all in the way a tale is told. After all, you, you, you are telling stories, and you want the reader to continue. So you have to have that gift, that gift of invention. And not everyone does. So I would say that a team of rivals is as inventive as any novel even though she's writing straight history she's able to invent uh, lincoln's inner world and uh, robert carroll does that with moses so i, I don't see I, in, in terms of historical novels or books of history it all depends on the poetry that you can give to to the work of art because mm-hmm. the, the the power broker is a work of art.
0: That's very interesting. I want to go back to Rita Hayworth just for a moment. Um, What would you say her legacy is? Well, I
1: mean, it depends on whether you've seen Gilda. I mean, uh, Marsha, if you've seen Gilda, you understand what Rita was about. She had the power to make love to the camera. I've seen very few actresses. I mean, uh, Marilyn Monroe had a tremendous gift as a comedian, and she also could make love. But it was also in the form of a parody. But in Gilda, she's really making love. She's really, un, you know, you know, being in front of the camera in, in a very sexual, profoundly sexual way. And very few people had that power. Brando also had that power. That power to exude a kind of sexuality, a kind of carnality on the screen, and uh, he, I think, is the greatest greatest screen actor we've ever had,
0: Marlon Brando. Yes. Yes. uh And particularly in
1: On the Waterfront, where Mm -hmm. he plays a kind of caricatured role, but he adds a kind of poetry to the caricature of the punch-drunk fighter. Just see that film again, and you'll
0: see it. Yes, yeah, for a long time. Long time. That, yeah,
1: but but, but Marsha, see it again. You know, for my yes, sake, do it for me.
0: I and will. It seems
1: yeah. that that he's able to provide a kind of poetry to a role that would ordinarily be a caricature.
0: That, um you know I think that's a really good idea. I think that probably as people are listening to our conversation they're conjuring up some of their favorite you know the Turner Movie Classic Channel where they where they would watch um Why? you know old movies that they haven't maybe seen in a very very long time and I, I guess I'd need to raise my hand as being one of those people but you've encouraged me to do that and uh This is an interesting question that I'm curious about. There's a quote that says, I never quite recover from Citizen Kane. Its lyrical nightmare has haunted half of my life. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, you know, I, I was not a child when I saw Citizen Kane because, you know, prints were not available. I was well into my 20s. So remember, I've been going to the movies, And what people don't understand is that as a kid, you never came in at the beginning of the movie. You always came in at the middle. You saw the middle, and you became so adept at what was going on that I could tell the beginning of the film without seeing it. I knew what was going to happen. So when I saw Citizen Kane, I saw a film in which every scene, every single scene, had a kind of poetic power, a kind of depth of vision that you could never find in any other film. It had an intensity. It had a poetry. It had a music. It had a sadness. Because after all, it's 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 a man coming into power and coming out of power, and it's it's Welles's role as Kane in that film that, you know, we can see, him. there's one scene in that film where his wife has left him, and he throws her furniture around the room, and he's playing a man in his 70s, well, a man in his 70s today could probably be a weightlifter, but in 1940, <laughs> a man in his 70s could barely move, and you That's see funny. him sort of unable to move as he throws the furniture around, and you see there's genius in every moment of that film, and I, I never recover from it. And there's no, no other film like it, no matter how good it is. It can never be as good as Citizen Kane.
0: Got to be on the top of everybody's to-go list. Um, um, which, what would you say of all the films that you've watched, what films have influenced your writing?
1: Well, the film that most influenced my writing is Pulp Fiction. I think Tarantino Car- oh. is a kind of brother, because when I saw Pulp Fiction, I said at last, there's a filmmaker who's doing exactly what I do. I mean, wow. he feels in a kind of comedy, in a kind of crazy, kinetic, comedic world, where someone dies in one scene and comes to life again, in the next scene. Uh, And also, I never recovered from seeing that film, too, because it was so unexpected. I didn't think I would ever find a film that replicated my own feeling about fiction, because I felt in fiction, you could really do anything you wanted to do so long as you did it well. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you were the one who had the gift to do any kind of scene you wanted to do but you had to do it in a way that works within the context of the film. And Tarantino did it in Pulp Fiction. And I think he's revolutionized cinema. I think every film since Cinnison came as Tarantino dialogue of sort of non sequiturs, of things sort of being out of hand, of the world, you know, being in a kind of crazy state. So I really I was the first one to teach a seminar on on Tarantino, and my students were absolutely brilliant. I mean, they understood him as well as I did, and I, I almost never recovered from that cinema, <laughs> from that seminar because they were telling me things that I didn't know, and usually I don't find that. Usually I'm the one who knows and tells yes. other people. Now here were these students telling me things that I didn't know.
0: Hmm. I loved
1: it, but you know, I, wasn't I was gonna say, them, I was going to say, I bet you loved them. it.
0: Oh, yeah, you I, know, you
1: I I'm not I'm yeah. not threatened by intelligence. I mean, if someone is more intelligent than I am, God bless them. You know. There you go. And that's what happened. You know, when I went to college, when I was in high school, I mean, I thought, who are these people? They're not telling me anything. I know more than they do. And when I went to college for the first time, people were telling me things that I just didn't know. Mm-hmm. And I said, something is wrong. You know, this is a different world. So I, you know, being a poor kid, I happened to go to a very good school, Columbia College. Which happened to have wonderful English departments. And I studied with some of the best people. And not only studying, with some of the best students. And we had a a seminar for, for, for the very best students where you went through the history of literature for two years. And you started with Homer, and you went all the way, let's say, to Virginia Woolf. And uh, in in each of these classes, we made one of the students crazy because mm-hmm. the students were brighter than one of the teachers. So, you know, wow. we would make fun of them. You know, I was very mm-hmm. cruel. Say. I'm, I'm sorry for what I did, but, you know, you can't have a teacher who's not as smart as you are. It doesn't
0: right. right, right, right. That's... You said Pulp Fiction, and I'm just thinking, okay, so does that, because I remember that movie because of my children. that movie come out in right. the 80s? Was that a movie in the in 80s? The 90s. I think the 90s. Oh, it was. Oh, it was in the 90s. Okay. Yeah. That even makes more sense. Um, when we think about um, Orson Welles and Rita Hayworth, if you were just to say, okay, give, give me an idea. So what would you say was your favorite movie? buyer with Orson Welles.
1: Well, I love Touch of Evil, not because it's as great as Citizen Kane, but I think it's Orson Welles' greatest performance as an actor. He plays Hank Quinlan, who's a crooked police chief, and he wears tons of makeup, but somehow it works. You see, exaggeration doesn't usually work. When Brando became older, he became increasingly exaggerated. And he became foolish, but in Touch of Evil, I mean, uh, 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 Wells, I mean, plays a very exaggerated role, but Mm -hmm. he does it brilliantly. I mean, Quinlan wears tons of makeup, and he's a crooked cop who who has a limp, and, uh, I mean, he's heartbreaking. Anyone who sees that film has to fall in love with, uh, with Touch of Evil. And I, I, I saw I, you know, it, it. It was a film that you know that disappeared, that only played for three days. So I hmm. saw it. Uh, I was already, uh, you know, I, I may even have been in college. I think it was 1956. But uh, all the kids in my neighborhood would remember every line, even though the, the film disappeared as soon as it, you know, was shown. It was a second feature, but. Those movie lovers, remember, those of us who went to the movies as kids were so sophisticated that when a film like that came out, you really, you know, you were in shock because, you know, Hollywood usually presented dribble, you know, just terrible, terrible stuff. And then suddenly this unwanted film comes along, this film that's discarded. And you see its beauty. You can determine its beauty. And that gives you a tremendous sense of power, this ability to see and to discern. And that's the gift that I have. And I say this humbly because, you know, it took me a long time. Uh, And and also I have the gift of, 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 of recognizing people. Very often I can go into the street and recognize an actor not by seeing his face, By by seeing the back of his head, because these faces, you know, are sort of outlined Mm -hmm. uh, in my head, you know. I just have this gift. It's a crazy gift.
0: Oh, I love it. I love it, and it's so funny. Until you said this, I had forgotten this. There are two movie theaters in my neighborhood. There there are no longer movie theaters anymore. Right, of course. But I forgot the term double feature. You're right. We would go to the movies. For, that, for Saturday afternoon, and you see right. the first movie, then there'd be a break, and then you'd see the right. second movie. I I totally, I mean, really, you took me back, you know, God, I don't want to tell you how many years ago that was, but a long time ago. Um, that was that was great. So, And so you told me about Orson Welles, and I know we just have a little bit of time left, but sure. if you had to say what was your favorite movie with Rita Hayworth, what would that answer be?
1: Well, You'd have to say Gilda. You, 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 okay. You could say the lady from Shanghai because she plays with her husband, and Well. But I think Gilda is magical, and I would beg you to see it if you haven't seen it in a while because, oh, you know, she doesn't appear until 20 minutes into the film. And from mm-hmm. the instant she appears, the film comes to life. I've, I've never seen a woman overtake a film. Uh, the way she does uh, in Gilda, and and it made her world famous. She was the most famous actress in the world. She married mm-hmm. Ali Khan. Uh, the marriage was a disaster. She always fell. She was always in love with Orson Welles, but he'd gone on to become a you know a different kind of person, and he was never very nice to her. And that's the one thing I hold against him. You know, I'm a Rita fan. And begrudged the way uh, he he behaved towards her. And the day before he died, he said something that was very, very nasty, because we know the sadness of her life, And, and the commentator said to him, well, Rita loved you all her life, and she felt happy with you, and he said something that really made me angry. He said, if she called that happiness, you can imagine what the rest of her life must have been like. And I never wow. forgave him for that remark. And it's it's not unusual that he died a day after that because it's almost as if I struck him down. But <laughs> uh, for him to say that was so cruel that um, I, I can't forgive him for that. I will never
0: forgive him for that. Yes. I'm think what year did what what year was Gilda um, what year was that movie released?
1: Nineteen forty
0: six. So I presume then that it was, uh, I, and I, I don't mean to sound ignorant, but I have to make the presumption. So these are back in the days when the movies were only black and white, correct? Yes,
1: it was a black and white film. It, 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 there were Technicolor films because Gone with the Wind in 39 was made in Technicolor. But you couldn't have made Gilda in color because you had to see her in black and white. Even though she had flaming red hair, you can imagine her hair. And she does a strip tease with only taking off one glove. I mean, uh, and it's just amazing. I mean, uh, performance is just beyond belief. You just cannot hmm. imagine what her performance is like
0: because wow. she's
1: able to show her sexuality on the screen in a way that most other people wouldn't be able to do.
0: She reveals Wait.
1: herself. In a yeah. way that uh, you, you don't find you don't find it in film.
0: Well, I I remember you saying a little while ago that you're now working on Maria Callas. Is that what I heard you say? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. Okay. I, I don't I don't know that much about opera, but I happened with my wife to watch a, a documentary about um, Maria Callas, and I told my wife right away that if if Maria were alive, I would divorce my wife and, and marry a <laughs> Oh, so, Lenore, so that I makes just, you happy,
0: uh, right? I'm used to it. Oh, gosh. Well, oh, my gosh.
1: Much, I told the truth. <laughs> but the thing is, I just fell in love with her, and the more I studied her, the more I saw that she was like me. She came from my background. She, she was a, a, a Greek woman who grew up in the United States. And she talked like a tough girl, but you know she studied uh, she studied voice so that when you hear her sing or you hear her mm-hmm. talk, she enunciates perfectly. But she really was a street kid, and uh, she was the greatest prima donna of uh, the 20th century.
0: Wow, I, I I'm trying to picture inside your brain where all of this resides. You know, you probably don't have a hat big enough to put over your head, um, because it just sounds like you can, I'm I'm impressed in the ability to recall, and maybe that, maybe because you've always done it, maybe that is what keeps your brain so alive and active, but it's, it's quite impressive, and I think for people that have spent this hour with us, they're going to want to know more, and I don't know if you're going to ever write a biography, but man, I could certainly see where that would be something that you could be brewing. Well, but I, I did, don't know. That. I
1: did do uh, I did do a kind of autobiography, but it's uh, it's more like fiction. There's no way I could really tell the truth of my life. I mean, uh, right. I had to invent. Uh, I, I invented a story about my mother. I'm shameful, uh, but uh, oh. it doesn't. It doesn't really matter because uh, your biography is in every book, is in every word, every sentence, every line. You're you're always writing about yourself. Even when you're writing about leader or you're writing about author, it's really yourself you're writing about.
0: And you shouldn't forget that. That is a critically well-stated sentence that I think kind of brings us to the close of this hour you've given so much of so many things for us to think about i'm going to look at a movie through a different lens now because of this conversation and i'm inspired to go to netflix or wherever and look for some of these movies that maybe i did see maybe i didn't see but now i'm certainly curious to go back as you suggested and watch gilda because frankly i i I don't remember seeing that movie. I wasn't born when it came out, and um, I, I don't have a memory of that, but I'm certainly interested in checking that out now. But I just want to thank you, Jerome. I want to thank you for all that you've given to this pod- podcast with me, for your energy, for your zest for life. And Lenore, I know you're sitting in the room with him, and I want to thank you also for being his partner on It's been wonderful. Here. It's been wonderful to even be a fly on the wall here, listening to the two of you. Well, well I had thank a great you. time. I had a
1: great time, Marsha. We, we, as you know, we could have continued forever. This could go on until midnight, but
0: it doesn't Absolutely. really matter.
1: We touched. We touched what we had
0: to touch. We did, and you know, when this Maria Callas book comes out, you'll have to come back, and we will. Well, we will. We, we will. We'll have episode two together, but for now, in my in that lovely place of New York where you're sitting at just about dinner time, and me in my lovely place in mid afternoon, I just want to wish you both the very best and to thank you. Thank you for your time. Um, I will make sure that your um, uh, book is um, linked so people can just easily go to Amazon or wherever they like to buy books and buy this book. And and learn more about you because this has really been just a delightful way for me to spend my afternoon. I'm very grateful. Thank you. Mom. We are too. We enjoyed it. I learned myself. So you know, isn't it funny how that happens? It's like, oh, yeah. I, I guess I never really thought about that. Exactly. So thanks. So thanks for playing along, my friend. That that made it all the better. And for the rest of you listening, that concludes one, two, three, four. Five podcasts in the month of August. Oh, it's been a delightful wow. month. I know. So for everybody listening, thank you once again, and I'm going to let um, Jerome and Lenore get on with their afternoon, and I'll be back next week, everybody. Bye for now.
1: Goodbye. Goodbye, Marsha.
0: Bye-bye.